0: Our clothing is inspired by the cultures we grew up in. Metal, punk, a little bit of goth, and all things dark. We offer men's, women's, and unisex t-shirts, tank tops, hats, and accessories. And right now, Heathen & Heretic is offering 20% off our entire store to all podcast listeners. Just use the promo code TOUR20 at checkout. That's T-O-U-R-20. Visit our online store at HeathenAndHeretic.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Heathen and Heretic Apparel. Check us out.
1: Episode number 63 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band The Guts. The Guts, spelled G U T Z, are a three piece punk rock band formed in 2012 in Santa Cruz, California. The Guts create an eclectic mix of multifaceted song arrangements, keeping your fist pumping track by track. New Noise magazine calls their brand of melodic heartfelt punk downright addictive. For more information on The Guts and dates for their upcoming tour through the Pacific Northwest, you can check out TheGutsBand.com and also on Instagram at TheGutsPunkRock. Now here it is, their new single, Bro Culture.
2: Hey, this is Chris from Propagandy, and you're listening to That One Time On Tour.
3: One for the boys, cause it's going on and on. We'll be driving through the darkest night until the break of dawn. We'll be heading for the cities, another show for us to play, to get back in the bed.
1: We'll do it all again. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land, what is going on? As always, this is Chris Swinney. I'm your host for that one time on tour, back with another killer episode. Uh, if you don't know, this is my podcast where I get to sit down with someone in or around the music industry and have an amazing conversation. And this week is no different. Before I tell you who's on the episode this week, I would like to give everybody a huge shout-out for checking out last week's episode with Jonathan and Eric from the now-defunct band, Brazil. But they are getting back together to have a reunion show in Indianapolis at the Hi-Fi on August 30th. Make sure to get your tickets. Go to HiFiIndy.com for more information. Thanks for checking that episode out. We charted, and it was awesome. And I'd like to thank Jonathan and Eric for coming on the show a second time. So this week on the show... This is a big one for me. It's kind of a bucket list thing. There are a few bands that I kind of put up there at the top, and this guy is in a band that I put up at the top. I'm talking, of course, about Mr. Chris Hanna from the band Uh We go back and forth at the beginning, a little joke, propagandi. Uh, You guys will have to wait to hear that. It's pretty funny. But yeah, this one was crazy. I got to talk to basically one of my favorite songwriters of all time, And we just shot the shit about gear and the history of the band. And I told him about the time I met him and I didn't really know it was him because I never saw a picture of him. (laughs) We were on tour in Winnipeg and he actually remembered he had a vague memory of meeting me as well. So uh, before we get to my conversation with Chris and man, it's a good one. I had such a great time talking with him. Uh, We need to pay some bills. You know, that's what we do every week. We have sponsors. We have some amazing sponsors. You heard at the beginning of the episode, we had the band The Guts, G U T Z. This is their second time sponsoring an episode. So I want to give a shout out to The Guts. Check them out, uh, and they're amazing. All the info will be in the show notes, and uh, you can go back and listen if you need to get any of the info about The Guts. But check them out. Love those guys, they're great. We also have a new sponsor heathen and heretic apparel you heard their little spot at the beginning of the episode they have some amazing clothes and uh like they said it's inspired by punk and goth and metal and everything dark so check out heathen and heretic they're on all the social medias and uh, they'll be in the show notes as well one of my favorite sponsors of all time we have merge four still on the show they make socks you know about Merge 4. They've got socks with you know skaters and bands and artists, and they're just amazing. We're going to do a Patreon-only contest for some Merge 4 apparel. So if you want to be eligible for that and you want to help the show out, go on over to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Get involved at the $5 level, and you will be eligible to win some really cool free stuff from Merge 4, as well as some of our other sponsors as well. So uh, last but not least, I have Permanence Tattoo Gallery over in Anderson, Indiana. My friend Jacob Harrison is the owner and one of the amazing tattoo artists at that shop. And uh, you guys need to go over there. It's on Meridian Street in downtown Anderson, Indiana. You can check them out on Facebook, Instagram, everywhere, at Permanence Tattoo Gallery. And they will hook you up with some tight ink, bro. Okay, so uh, I'm going to try to keep this thing short. Uh, I do have a TOTOT radio segment this week. No top five list. I asked Chris a top five list, actually. So, uh, yeah, so go ahead and roll the theme music. It's time for TOTOT radio. On this edition of TOTOT Radio, I am highlighting an awesome band by the name of Non-Starter. They are the band of actually past guest Sean Colon. Uh, He directed the documentary on Fat Records. A Fat Rec is what it's called. And he has an awesome band called Non-Starter. They have a new EP coming out. Actually, I think it's already out on Dang Records. It's called Seasoned Stuntman. It's really cool, kind of skate punky. It's got some some like metallic sounding stuff in it. I love it, man. Sean sent me some of the stuff, and it's it's amazing. So you guys need to check out Nonstarter on Dang Records. They have a band camp. Go ahead and just Google Nonstarter Band, uh, and all the information will also be in the show notes. But we're gonna check out their new single off of Season Stuntman. It's the title track. So here it is: Season Stuntman by Nonstarter. Man, uh, non starter with season stunt man, love that band, Sean. Thank you so much for sending me the EP, I love it. You guys go out there and check out non starter on dang records with their new EP season stuntman. Okay. So that is the intro guys. Thank you so much for listening to everything. You know, I try to, I try to add content. I know a lot of you came to hear Chris from Propagandi, and that's what we're going to do right now. But you know, I like to, I like to spice it up and have different things going on on the show with the top five lists and with, with the TOTOT radio segments. And, you know, that's how it goes. So we're going to get into my conversation. Make sure you're following us on all of the social media platforms. It's at TOTOT Podcast. If your band or company wants to sponsor an episode or two, hit me up, TOTOT Podcast at gmail.com. Leave me a voicemail. It might get played on the show. You can talk about anything you want, make suggestions for guests, anything your heart desires. You can call the TOTOT hotline. its six five three seven two. 8818. That is it. We're going to get into my conversation. This is one of my favorite episodes ever, and uh, it was so much fun. So, without further ado, here it is my conversation with Mr. Chris Hanna from the Almighty Propagandi. Here we go. And I'm on the line with Mr. Chris Hanna from Propagandi. How are you doing today, Chris? Hi, it's
2: Propagandy.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. You yeah, we were just talking in, in Canada. See, that's the thing. My whole life, I've been listening to you guys since the first record, and I've been a huge fan. And I've always said Propagandy because, in my mind, it was like propaganda mixed with Gandhi. But then I've heard you and other Canadians say Propagandy, so I, I was I was worried I would say it wrong.
2: Yeah, well, I think um, Americans have said it for so long that it's kind of spread across the border. Even Canadians and Europeans say it now. So,
1: yeah, my uh, one, one of my buddies, uh, Shane Told from Silverstein, he's got a podcast and he's talked about you guys quite a bit. And I've always heard him say propaganda. So, in my mind, I was like, well, maybe <sighs> it's not a Canadian thing since he's from Ontario, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely now officially propaganda. <laughs>
1: okay. So, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show. Like I said, I'm a huge fan, I've been listening forever. Uh, I'm a guitarist, and I've got to say a lot of your riffs really influenced me as, how, as far as how I write things.
2: Oh, awesome, thanks.
1: and I mean, we, we talk about a lot of stuff on this podcast, and we're going to go we're going to do a deep dive here in a second. But as far as you know, writing your songs and coming up with the music, I mean, what is your background as far as theory? Are you just like a shredder guy that just you know has all the feeling, or do you know a lot of the theory behind it?
2: Um, no theory uh i have no idea about about musical theory um i know i by this point i know a few of the chords down by the by the nut
3: yeah i
2: know what they're called but i don't um i don't understand why uh scales work in certain keys and other keys like i really don't i Sulin, when when she joined the band recently, like in the past two years she's a guitar teacher and yeah. she she came in and tried to teach me some theory and it lasted about 15 minutes. And, uh, it's just like fucking (laughs) physics to me. So,
1: so what's your, what's your approach when you sit down, you just jam until you get a riff that you enjoy or is there, is there any kind of, you know, like, you know, chaos, like it, like a, a a way that you do it, you know?
2: Um, no, we just kind of, I think both Todd and I Todd's the other main songwriter in the band I think we just sit around with our guitars until we until we find something that that kind of reminds us of 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 the music that really moved us when we were younger and um and then we start to develop that and see if we can connect it to other other musical pieces and then see if it if it um inspires any any kind of vocals or a lyric direction. Yeah. It's all very, very, it's very random. And I, I really wish there was a formula because then we could just do that and have yeah. records out every year, but there's not.
1: And, and you guys tend to tune in E flat, correct?
2: Um, Oh fuck. we we've, we've, we're such a disaster tuning wise. We have <laughs> e, e flat is sort of the standard for the past three records. Um, it used to be E, but we also have drop D we also have a, a B tuned up. We also have drop C sharp. Like there's just, it's just a big mess live. Like there's capos flying all over the place. <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah, because I think I was uh, in, in preparation for this. I watched a couple of interviews and I, you know, I saw a, a gear rundown where you were talking to this guy in Nashville about your gear and you were talking about the capos, but you also only tour with like one or two guitars. So that must be kind of a nightmare. Do you, do you tune down to the lowest and then use the capos to do all the other tunings?
2: No, I'm, now we have uh, both Susan and I take two guitars. One is E flat standard. The other one is going to be for the drop D's and for the C sharps. Okay. And we try to just plan the sets. <clears throat> So that all the drop D songs happen in one section, all C sharps happen in one section and the rest of the flats happen elsewhere, which is kind of like, it kind of narrows how much fun you can have making your set. Yeah. But, um, but it, I mean, such a drag for the crowd to see people just (laughs) standing up there, you know, tuning their fucking guitars. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you Um, guys are using the fractal system on tour, correct?
2: uh, Yeah. Sulin and I both use the FX eight, which is like, not amp modeling. It's just um, it's an effects unit. Uh, so we use real amps, and we just use that because it's it's so easy to to fly in with this thing. Yeah, you know, instead of bringing a giant pedal board and getting charged by the airlines for <laughs> another giant fucking bag.
1: There's probably less like chances of something going wrong as well, since it's all like inclusive in the in the system. Correct?
2: Kind of. That's that's the rationale. Is that you know, on a pedal board, especially one, if, if me or Sue make it, it's just a fucking bunch of spaghetti, you know, it's like cables everywhere and something goes wrong and suddenly you have to troubleshoot, Yeah. you know, 20 cables in front of this crowd of people. Whereas the fractal, if it, if it fails, well, you know, it's, it's, you know what it is. It's yeah. the, the whole thing's done. So figure something else out. So, um, yeah, that's why we do it.
1: That's, that's cool, man. Well, I wanted to tell you a story really quickly because uh, I actually, I met you in person one time and it's kind of a funny story I've talked about on the podcast before. You probably don't remember anything about this, but I used to tour with a band from Canada called The Reason and uh, <clears throat> we were playing, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, you kind of maybe know those guys a little bit. Was Was The Reason on Small Man Records at one point? Yeah, this is actually the first, uh, right after they signed a small man and their record on Small Man came out, we were oh, on, yeah, yeah. we were on tour and we were playing in Winnipeg. I can't remember the name of the bar, but we were playing a show with this uh, kind of punk band called the Black Halos.
2: Oh, yeah. And
1: yeah. Uh, I, I'd been a fan of you guys for so long, like literally one of my favorite bands. I'm not trying to fanboy out or anything, but uh, you guys never really had pictures of yourself in the CDs. And, you know, I just I guess I'm a stupid American. I never really knew what you guys looked like. So I'm sitting at the bar after we played and uh, I meet this very nice fellow with a baseball cap on. And start talking about music. And we were I was drinking a prairie fire because the guy I was hanging out with told me it's a good drink. <laughs> and uh, the thing that was funny was you. OK, I'll just let's spill the beans. It was you. You said, well, what, <laughs> what are some of your favorite bands? And I was going through the list of stuff. And I, I mentioned, well, we're in Winnipeg. I've got to talk about propaganda. And you kind of smiled and you looked at me and you said, yeah, I sing in that band. And I felt like such an asshole because I had no idea. And we'd already been talking for like an hour and a half at that point.
2: Well, that's okay. We probably had so many prairie fires. We we didn't know what we were talking about anyhow.
1: No, and I've I've told that story so many times. It's like, man, you know one of my favorite bands that I put up there with, you know, like, you know, Metallica got me into playing music. And then, you know, when I got into punk rock, you guys were a really big part of that. And I'm sitting there talking to you forever. And then all of a sudden, oh, I'm talking to the singer and guitarist of one of my favorite bands. It was, it was kind of mind blowing, you know?
2: Was it a guy named Quentin who was feeding you the prairie fires?
1: That sounds super familiar. Like I'm saying, man, this was like early 2000s. I
2: feel like I'm, I almost have like a vague memory of, of that situation you're describing. It sounds like it might've happened at the the alternative cabaret.
1: I think that's um, where it was. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing yeah. was like, we play, we opened the show, the black halos played. There wasn't a big turnout at all. And then we all just kind of hung out at the bar and it was almost like after hours. Yeah. And, and I was sitting at the bar, just bored out of, out of my mind. And you were sitting there and we just struck up a conversation. And that's why I didn't really know if you would remember any of it. Cause it's been so long ago, but to me it stuck with me for quite a while.
2: Oh, cool, man. That was, uh, I do kind of remember that. I remember, I definitely remember hanging out after hours with Quentin at that, at that place. And I remember buyers. there
1: being a, the guy that was making it was a friend of yours. So I think that's probably it's cool that you have a vague memory. That makes me feel pretty cool. <laughs> OK, well, uh, what I want to do is on this show, we always talk about kind of the beginnings of things. And I mean, I I know the whole band's history. So I just want to know with you, were you learning guitar at a young age? Like, what bands were you into? What made you decide that music was kind of an avenue you wanted to go down?
2: Uh, Venom.
1: Okay, yeah, um, awesome.
2: I heard, I heard uh, you know, I was, I was mildly into and interested in Priest and, and stuff like that, and then Maiden. Um, that was my first show, was Maiden and Twisted Sister. But um, when I heard Venom uh, in about, it must have been 80, 83, 82? and i just thought holy shit this is there's either something wrong with this record or this is the greatest thing i've ever heard and I, and I think i could probably do this yeah so i i asked if i could have a guitar for christmas that year and i couldn't believe it my mom didn't just get me one; she got me a fucking flying v <laughs> That's awesome, and man. uh yeah and i just sat there listening to venom and exodus and battery and trying to play along and um, learning no theory, but having a good time. That's yeah. how it started. Yeah.
1: So was propaganda, I talked to people on this show a lot and you'd be surprised the band that kind of, you know, becomes their career as their first band. Now, were there a lot of bands before propaganda for you?
2: Uh, no, no, it was, that was, I think pretty much it. Like me and Jordan decided to do, to do this around, we were probably 15 or 16. And, um, I mean, the first band I played live with was a different band called Crawl, but that was just, you know, something that was happening on the side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's always, we did lots of kind of side projects here in Winnipeg too, but but uh, no, it was always propaganda from the beginning. I was I was in, a, there was a band from Winnipeg called Corpus Vile, and they put a, a record on Fringe Records back in the day. They were fucking awesome. And I was in them for one day.
1: <laughs> was there a really good scene back then around like cuz you guys on the internet of course it says you guys formed in uh Portage la Prairie, Portage la Prairie but uh yep. you guys ended up in Winnipeg later on what was the scene like back then was there a good like thriving local scene up there
2: Uh not in Portage la Prairie um but we had a we had a very strange and excellent record store there called Busy Fingers which was also a, it was a sewing shop and they had sewing shop, and they had speed metal records. Wow! So, uh, you know, that's kind of how we got into it. And then in Winnipeg, it was an awesome scene. I thought it was amazing. Like, uh, we we kind of got into it just at the end of the personality crisis stretch marks era. Okay, which which is which was a cool era, but it wasn't really my thing. The time I got into it was more when Corpus Vile, Global Genocide Artificial Life DAC like lots of. Uh, kind of semi-crossover, you know, like metallic crossover bands. That was, that was really my thing. And it was kind of a magical time because there was a DIY venue called the Cauldron, um, you know, upstairs in this old warehouse. And it was really exciting time because there were no, nothing was, there was no formalized way of putting on a show. There was no security. There's no lineups, you know, it was just fucking chaos and it was a good time.
1: <laughs> has the has the metal since you know you said you got into venom and all those bands has that always been something that's been attractive to you?
2: Uh metal bands?
1: Yeah, I mean just like the because you guys, you know, when you put out the first record it was sort of more along the lines of punk rock and whatnot, but there's always been those metal tinges and like the aggressiveness in your music and the angular guitar playing. So like at the beginning when you got into those bands was it easier for you to maybe go the punk route just because it takes a while to get good enough on guitar to play metal?
2: Yeah, ex- exactly. You know, cause I, I had also, um, just a few years prior to the, you know, the, how to clean everything, uh, record. I had heard that first bad religion record suffer. And I thought, holy shit, this is like, it's like the Ramones, but with motorhead, yeah, you know? And yeah. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And, and again, this is something I think I could, I could, I, my playing is more in the ballpark of this than it is of creator, which I was, you know, trying to play creator of all the time. When that's was, hard, man. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's how we kind of ended up in that sort of uh, SoCal fat records scene, you know?
1: Was there a, like a distinguishing, like a line drawn in the sand with bands in the Winnipeg area, like punk bands, metal bands, or did everybody just play together? Like one big, like, like scene.
2: Everybody played together when we started. There was no, I mean, yeah, there was no difference. Like our first show was with immortal possession, which was a a death metal band and, uh, like a street punk band called, what the fuck were they called? I can't remember. You know, it was just, everybody just played with everybody
1: were there were there a lot of bands that like would hit, you know, Canada on their tours like bigger bands were they stopping in Winnipeg?
2: Um but in the in the 80s, yeah, like there was all the all the big punk bands, government issue, crotch conformity, DRI, circle jerks, everybody came to Winnipeg, but then when the 90s hit, maybe not so much. Like Winnipeg's Winnipeg's like a you only come here if you have to
1: i'll just say that when i was there that time i met you man it was the summertime the mosquitoes were so bad it was horrible
2: well it's kind of there hasn't there have been no mosquitoes here in like three summers now and i'm kind of worried about it yeah like it seems like the canary in the coal mine but 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 um i mean worse than mosquitoes in winnipeg is just that there's for bands there's no money here like it's yeah. a pretty it's an economically depressed city relative to places like Calgary or Edmonton you know yeah. which are oil rich um and and lots of bands have had some uh, negative experiences you know here um not in terms of it or or whatever but getting their vans robbed or whatever so uh yeah like people seem to avoid Winnipeg especially these days like they go they go to Alberta
1: when you guys were playing back then, you got the band started, you know, I, I, in some of my research, I saw that, uh, you know, you guys opened up for Fugazi. Of course you opened up for no effects when all that stuff like took place, but were you kind of the go-to band when bigger bands would come through to open or like, how did you get on those early shows? Um,
2: we weren't the go-to band. No, we, it was kind of spread out evenly. Um, it just so happened. We had like, uh, these these legendary brothers, the Riel brothers used to put on some of the shows and they were friends of ours. So if they had a, a a show coming up, they would ask us and we had, yeah, we kind of knew, we knew like kind of the mid-level punk rock promoters. They were usually our friends and they would just kind of share the wealth, let different bands open different shows. We weren't the go-to by any, by any stretch of the imagination though.
0: This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast
1: Were you guys doing any like, uh, small tours back then, or was it all pretty localized?
0: It was very
2: local until, um, I think 1991 or 92, we, uh, was it 92? must've been 92. I think we went on this short, hapless disaster of an American tour.
1: <laughs> what can, do you have any, uh, any stories from back on that tour?
2: Uh, well, the, the, the goal was to get out to to Berkeley to to San Francisco and try to play Gilman okay um, without having booked the show <laughs> <And> <laughs> you, you were so, just planning
1: on showing up and, and seeing what yeah, happened yeah, yeah yeah we were we were fucked <laughs> dude, I've been but, there before you used to do those tours back in the day where you you might have like three shows booked in a month and you're just hoping you can find shows on the way
2: <laughs> that's that's our what our whole plan was we just piled in a van and, and did that but the first night. We played in Rapid City, South Dakota, which at the time was this strange Midwestern punk rock mecca. Everybody went there and played there. And we ended up playing our first night. We played with Jawbreaker. Wow. And that was like, holy fuck, this is crazy. And, and we finished. And then Blake from Jawbreaker said, no, keep playing. You guys are great. So we kept playing. And I was like, wow, this is great. And then afterwards we go to this party and I made out with this girl and I was like, holy shit, this is crazy.
1: America. <laughs> is, is it
2: going to, is it going to be like this every night?
3: Yeah, of course of course not. It,
2: right. <laughs> and then it never was again. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, that's such a false sense of what's going to happen. I think that's hilarious. That was the first night of the tour. And then,
2: yeah, it was crazy.
1: That That's awesome. And so back then, was it all like you guys were in a van or were you guys like, I know back in my, my first tour, we were in like two cars. <laughs>
2: We were in, we were in our friend's van on that first tour. Yeah. Our our very first, like you say on our very first trip out of Winnipeg, um, which was just, just a trip to the neighboring province. We took two cars. Yeah. It was the same thing.
1: So when you guys came across on that first tour to the States, uh, was there any problems at the border or anything? I mean, like did they know what you guys were doing? Because I know when I was younger, my first time I ever went to Canada, we weren't like a signed band or anything. And we were stuck at the border for like eight hours. Cause they, well, are you, you're, you're going to be working in our country. And I was like, well, right. we probably won't make any money.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, the nineties were kind of a magical time. All the, all the pre nine yeah. 11 border crossings. Yeah. Like what we would do, we would never cross at the main, the main border crossings. We would uh, wait until about quarter to nine, um, or try to arrive at the border a quarter to nine, but it would be it would be one like a rural border okay. where it was just like s- some local farmer was the border guard, <laughs> yeah. And the border's supposed to close at nine. We'd show up fifteen minutes early, and he'd be like, "Oh, for Christ's sake, you guys! What do you and you know?" <laughs> and he'd be like, "Okay, go ahead." He wouldn't even <laughs> check the van.
1: That's and, awesome, man.
2: But uh, and then eventually, we, like we would get people in Minneapolis to well, I can't remember the name of the record label, but they'd write us fake recording papers. Um, so it looked like we were coming down to put money into us economy to record. And then we just stay there for two months.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) So, uh, I want to talk a little bit about this. You guys were together. You were doing all that stuff in 1992. It's, you know, it's folklore by this point, you played a show with no effects. Uh, how did all that come about? Did fat Mike talk to you guys right away. I mean, were you guys leery of signing to that label? Like how, what was the feeling? Like the general feeling around all that?
2: Um uh yeah, like right after the show he came up to us and wanted a tape and I gave him a tape and he never paid me for it. And uh <laughs> Of course, right. Yeah. And uh I should charge him interest. Oh, you should point. totally
1: charge him interest at this point. Yeah.
2: 30 years of interest. <laughs> yeah. Um and and he started calling us, and I was like, "Yeah, it sounds good. I, like, look, we could just—I make—I could record it on a four-track up here." And he's like, "No, no, I want to do a real record, and like in a real studio." And I just kept thinking, "Well, this is this is not going to happen. It's like, yeah. just not going to happen." Um, and eventually, he's like, "Okay, you guys just just get plane tickets down to." uh, to LA and I'll record you at West beach. I'll pay for it. And I was Holy shit. That's where, uh, that's where those bad religion records. Are. <laughs> yeah. Fuck. Is he serious? Is this guy fucking serious. And, uh,
1: because at that, at that point, at that point, fat records wasn't really even known. I mean, like they'd only what, had a couple records out. So, I mean, that's gotta be kind of a scary thing. Like, you know, no effects, but, He's wanting you to, you know, risk a lot by coming all the way to Los Angeles. I mean, were you guys a little bit freaked out?
2: I think so. I think, um, I think we, we were just so disorganized and, and, uh, not serious about the band, um, that it was hard to get it going. And, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what we were thinking, but eventually we got down there and then in we were really there and really making a record. Yeah. And then, and then, and then it, it hit me like, Holy shit, we should have practiced.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cause what was it like in the studio? Was that your first experience in like a real studio?
2: Yeah. We had been doing four, four track demos in like my mom's basement for a few years and just doing it whenever we felt like it, you know? So we would, we would never finish uh, a recording in a week. Yeah. It would You know, we'd do it over the course of a few months, just like, yeah, whenever we're bored we'll do it so like we like it was very stressful um because there was no turning back yeah uh we you had like each guy literally had one day to do all 13 songs wow so i so i had one day to do both guitars and and all the vocals and i just was like these are not good these are not good. <laughs>
1: I just, I know when I went to the studio for the first time, I, I know I was kind of cocky, like, Oh, I'm a good guitarist. And then when you get in there and everything's under a microscope, it kind of makes you realize that you're not a fully, like a fully formed musician. Did you have any like anxiety about going into the studio the next time?
2: Um, no, we did not learn our lesson, (laughs) uh, at all. Like with the next record, we showed up to San Francisco and started recording for like two weeks. And then we're like, Oh, we don't have enough songs and these ones aren't finished. And we had to go home. Really? Yeah. That's how stupid we were.
1: (laughs) So what was the, you guys went home and wrote some more songs or like, how did it all
2: go? Yeah. That's what happened. (laughs) It's It's absolutely ridiculous to, to remember it, but that's what happened.
1: Was the label kind of upset with that whole thing that it took a little bit longer. There was that extra recording stuff going on.
2: I think they were in disbelief and maybe amused by it because we were paying for it, you know, like yeah, it was coming out of our, whatever royalties we would ever make off the record. So I don't think they really cared too much, especially because things were going so well for them at the time Yeah, know, yeah. For, with other bands and all no facts and stuff. I
1: mean, there was the glory days of those, you know, early to mid nineties for, for Epitaph and fat. So yeah, it, it's crazy that you guys kind of were at the beginning of that. And then th- through those times as well, did, uh, Did it ever like, when did it kind of occur to you that, wow, this is kind of something, you know, like, I don't want to use the term like we've made it because there's so many bands that, you know, they, it seems to outsiders like they've made it, but they probably haven't. Was there a time or like a moment where it all just kind of made sense to you and it felt like it was really becoming something?
2: Um, no, someone had, someone had asked me sort of the same question the other day and I realized it wasn't until 2009. Um, when we, uh, made supporting cast, um, that I was like, wow, we have, this is cool. We have something pretty cool that could have some longevity.
1: Yeah. I mean, you've got to admit though. It's crazy that in 2009, you, that was your first thought because I mean, this is what your 33rd year as a band. Yeah, yeah, probably. (laughs) It's It's crazy, man.
2: I think what had happened in 2009 was like we were finally a four piece for the first time. Yeah. And the songs uh, sounded more like I had always hoped they would sound. You know, it took that long. It took 19, 20 years to, to get where we wanted to go
1: what took you guys so long in maybe deciding to become a four piece because with the, with the style of music and just, it, it lends itself to the to guitar attack, you know, with the, with the different harmonies and whatnot going on. Did it just, was it a logistics thing or did you just finally decide to do it?
2: Uh, I think we were just mostly concerned about chemistry. Okay. Like, cause me, Todd and Jord are like, um, there's a real specific chemistry that keeps things rolling with us. Yeah. And we just didn't, I think we thought we don't want to upset that. How is someone going to fit into this? And, um, around 2006 or seven or eight or whatever, when we, when B joined the band, you know, I, I had, I had been hanging out with B for a few years and I was like, this guy could, he could roll with us. He's kind of the same.
1: He's a shredder too, man. I, I saw, I saw you guys live with him a few times and he just, he kills
3: it, man.
2: Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah, and you know he's sort of a uh, kindred spirit, and um, and then when Sulin came along again, we were like, oh, how's this going to work? Is how we going to mash his people? And it didn't take too long for us to be like, oh yeah, Sulin's also a kindred spirit. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we got real lucky.
1: So when you know, I I, I read that uh, Beeve left the band to pursue his teaching career. When that happened in 2015 what was the process for finding Sue i think i remember there being like a thing on facebook or on somewhere on the internet like you know send a send a video in if you want to be the new guitarist for propaganda and all my buddies were like trying to get me to do it but i was i was very scared because i i teach guitar for a living you know i i'm, I'm pretty much a shredder but when i watch you play i i get a little bit of cold feet i gotta say
2: oh wow It's crazy. I don't, yeah, I don't feel, I don't feel like I'm a shredder at all.
1: Well, (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's the energy and just the way that, I mean, it's it's kind of weird to say, but the way you kind of attack your instrument, like I've seen you guys live many times and it's just, I don't know, everything is so tight and precise and with you and Beave together, I'd seen that a few times and I just thought that it was so great. So when there was going to be an announcement for a new guitarist, I was like, man, you know, who is this going to be? And since then, I've I've seen videos of you with Sue Lin, and it's, I mean, you guys aren't missing a beat. It's almost exactly the same.
2: Yeah, I, th- you know, it was um, when we first were facing having to find a guitar player. Like we we discussed, well, do we just pick up a buddy from here in town? Yeah. You know, like do the easy thing, or do we make this kind of exciting? Like, do we try to find you know the next level? And that's kind of why we put the the word out, which I, which people were like, what are you guys doing? Like, that's not how you do it. You just yeah. find somebody, you find somebody internally, but that's not what we wanted to do. And then, I mean, finding Suwen was just like fucking winning the lottery, you know, like this really interesting person from a different place and yeah. different background. And, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's fucking awesome.
1: Were there any other, like, you know, you don't have to name names or anything, but were there others that were potentially in the running there at the end before you guys went with Sulin?
2: Yeah. Yeah. There was lots of really good, like lots of people
1: are technically amazing players, um, but they might be assholes, right? When you get on tour.
2: <laughs> yeah, they could be, but I mean, I, we didn't even get that far with some people. It was yeah. just more like, um, I was, it was hard to really put our finger on it. Like Sulin, just the very first, kind of correspondence with her was like it kind of stood out um like not just because of the way she identifies in the world but just the way just the way she was kind of speaking about um why she wanted to do it okay um it was more like it was less about being the guitar player in this i don't know it was weird it was just like it kind of stood out like uh just the some sort of uh, earnestness, or but honesty, and not not trying to to sell herself. Yeah, I don't know. It was weird. It just right right away, I thought this person's kind of like us.
1: And I mean, yeah, you talk about kindred spirits, like you know, with Propaganda being you know the the type of band with the you know you guys have political you know, stuff in your lyrics and there's certain stances that you take on certain issues, you would probably have to find somebody that aligned themselves, at least with your ideals, correct? Um,
2: yeah, I get, we didn't really have to cross that bridge with Sue because she was like, she's on the same page anyways Yeah, yeah. with, with everything. Well, with, I mean, anything we've had to deal with, uh, or we've talked about, uh, so far, um, Yeah, but, I mean, she wasn't, she didn't make a cut because of that stuff. Yeah. You know, it was more, she sent this video of uh, her playing in the studio, um, playing Night Letters and some other song. And I was just like, fuck, she's, like, I can't, she's, she's nailing it. Yeah. And, and it was, and the other stuff was gravy, you know, it was like, oh, she's also, she's also vegan. Fucking A, we don't have to worry about that. (laughs) Yeah she's also not a dipshit. She's, she's on, you know, she's on, uh, she's on the same team. So. And she can
1: sing harmony as well. That's one thing, man. I mean, cause I know Beev did that and like just hearing you guys with the backup vocals, like I, she kills it every time.
2: Right. And she can sing a little higher, um, than I can, which is great. So she can handle some of the higher
1: parts. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so when you, uh, you know, did you and beeve have definite like, different parts that you played in the songs or like when she came in, was there a set thing she was learning or do you guys kind of go back and forth and how, I mean, I know that the song she wasn't a part of, of course, there was the part you played and the part he played, but is there ever, do you guys ever kind of retool anything for live? Um,
2: If we do, it's, it's uh probably pretty minor just because since Sulin lives in New York, uh, she shows up like, five days before we go on tour so we don't we don't have tons of time to it's mostly like nailing nailing the song as it is um there's not a lot of time to investigate other ways of doing the songs um but she's like she's so quick with um effects and adding depth and dimension that she she kind of it's kind of like b's like b was good at that too he was able to hear what I was playing and then add something that's that's adds kind of a layer instead of just like an alternate part, add some atmosphere to it. So she's really good at that too. So that's very helpful.
1: So when you're playing these leads, I mean, I know we talked about it and you, you said that you don't really know theory, do you just know where to start and then take it from there? Like what is your thought process when you're playing leads? Like I know like the beginning of coach's corner and a couple other songs, they're pretty chromatic and they just go so fast. Even the notes that maybe don't fit, they sound really cool because they're they're The phrasing is so quick, but like what is your process for when you're actually doing some sort of like lead part?
2: Uh, well for coach's corner, it was like, um, I was trying to channel a little bit of Dr. No from bad brains. Okay. Yeah. you know, like if you, uh, the way the eye against eye record starts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like he's more in key than I am in coach's corner, but it's that in the eighties, there was like kind of this explosive fucking It didn't have to be like a proper scale when, when people were doing solos in some hardcore bands, a few metal bands, like uh, mentioning creator again, like he fucking was never playing yeah. in key. He was just ripping up and down and i kind of wanted to evoke a bit of that and i remember saying that when uh, when we were recording the blasting room like i was like i want this solo to sound like doctor no from bad brains and bill was like you're no doctor no and i <laughs> press re- record and off i went so
1: <laughs> well it's it's great man i can see what you're saying i mean i i talk about it with my students all the time because some of my students are they want to learn theory and some of them just want to learn songs and i have this one student that's really into pantera And we were learning some Pantera stuff. And what I realized as never dissecting it when I was young is that like the song Walk by Pantera, all 12 notes are in that song. Mm. It's really strange. Like they put them in certain places where in context because of what the bass is playing, you know, what the guitar is playing. It all works together, but it's really, you'd be hard pressed to find out exactly what key that song is because there's so much going on in that song, you know? Oh, weird. I don't know if you're a Pantera fan. I was when I was young. I don't listen too much anymore, but I,
2: I, I was not a Pantera fan. <laughs> well,
1: w- well, let's talk about things that you were a fan of. You've mentioned venom and different bands like that. Now, one of my favorite things that you guys have done, and it's kind of a, a little joke in one of the songs is when you said, by the way, I stole this riff and you play the little Metallica riff. Uh, were you a fan of Metallica? Like, did that influence you at all?
2: Oh, I was a huge Metallica fan. Yeah. they um, I guess, like, like Venom, I loved Venom. They were my favorite band, but I, I think the bands that uh, guitar-wise um, were more important were probably Metallica, early Metallica, uh, Dave Mustaine, oh, yeah. early, early stuff, and, and that first Exodus LP. Um, like, I couldn't play quite like any of those guys, but I was really trying to to get there. Yeah. You know, ballpark wise rhythm. Guitar, I really love the way uh, Gary Holt um, plays on that first Exodus records, just crushing.
1: So when you guys, you guys were, you put out the first few records, what I've noticed, and I'm sure you've probably talked about this at length, but uh, as you know, sequentially as the records came out, the musicianship got so much tighter and so much more of the metal influence came out. Do you attribute that to just, you know, touring and getting better on your instrument?
2: Um, maybe not to touring, more to just being at home and 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 you know trying to catch up, yeah with yourself um yeah, just spending more time in the practice space, really for us like we we're not like a road warrior kind of band, really, and um most of the time i mean the, my the most fun I have in the band is in the practice space, and uh it's always been that way. And we've spent most of our time there, um, instead of on the road. Um, so that's, we just got better just by being in the practice space.
1: I know that you guys recently, uh, put out a tab book. Was that, uh, was that a pretty long and drawn out process?
2: Um, sometimes it is. Yeah. Cause we, we have these guys they're really good. Uh, it's the sheet happens publishing out in
1: Toronto. They have something they to get- do with protest the hero, correct? Cause I know they put some stuff out as well.
2: Yeah, it's it's actually Luke and Tim from Protest the Hero okay. that do this company. And um they have transcribers. It's like guys they go to, they they give them the record and say, Okay, transcribe this. And they do it and it's unbelievably close for people who don't, you know, for transcribers who don't even know the band. Yeah. But um and and we could just let them we could not proofread them and let it go out there and it'd be close enough. But uh Todd and I always like to go through the 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 transcriptions and and make sure they're as close to accurate as possible to what we're playing and there's always it's it's long and drawn out because we have to go through it you know line by line and like okay well this note's not quite right this note's not quite right um i don't know why we do that but (laughs) i guess because i guess because when i grew up you get tabs for stuff you'd be like there's no way this is this is this is not how you play jump
1: Well, yeah, I remember, I remember, I remember getting a ride the lightning tab book when I was probably 14 and I would try to play this stuff and like a lot of it was right, but there was a lot of it that was not right. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, Kirk Hammett and James didn't like sign off on those tabs.
2: No, it was just their management company just like ramming these deals through. I'm sure.
1: I think it's such a cool idea for you guys to do that because, you know, as a guitar instructor, I, I kind of teach two different ways. We we have the the set you know way where you go through the theory and you learn all your scales. And then I've got other kids that you know their parents are paying me money, and maybe they don't want to play on a cruise ship. Maybe they don't want to go teach in college. So we just do songs and have fun and learn through that. And I use a lot of internet tabs, and nine times out of ten, they are horribly wrong.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I've even looked at propaganda tabs, and a lot of them they're not even semi close to what you guys are playing.
2: Yeah. It's crazy. I I find that very frustrating. I've even joined uh, a couple of those tab companies online, like you know when I'm I want to look up a Peter Gabriel Salisbury Hill tab or something. Yeah, and then I'll even pay for a subscription, and then I'm like trying to play this alleged authorized transcription. It's like this is not even this is not what the guy's playing.
1: Yeah, totally. Come on. So when you're you know we've talked a little bit about songwriting and. When you're doing this, I mean, some people, they say it's like either way, both ways. When you're doing this, is the, does the music come first or is it lyrics first? Or do you like have, you know, a quote unquote poem written or whatever. And then you put, try to put that and make it the phrasing fit. Like what comes first for you guys?
2: Um, yeah, it's different every time. I think things happen in parallel. Um, like we're writing ideas down, uh, in a, in a book, you know, in, And then at the same time in the practice space, we're trying some riffs out. And these things are just happening in parallel until they kind of eventually meet somewhere. Yeah. You know, and I don't know, you never know when or why they meet. Um, But when they do, then you got to, you know, strike while the iron's hot and try to flesh it out. But uh, there, yeah, there's always, I guess, I mean, the music's, for me, making riffs happens more often. Um like I'm always you know on this phone here I have this little voice memo uh recorder and I'm always recording little snippets from an acoustic guitar or electric guitar on it, but I'm not always writing down lyrics or ideas. Yes. Uh it's kind of more like when we consciously decide we should make a record soon and, and I start <laughs> writing the ideas down then, you know.
1: Well, I know that uh every time that I've seen you play, a lot of the times You've played an ESP. I think it's a Eclipse EC-1000. Uh, and then I've also seen you playing the SG. I know that you just had a new signature guitar come out. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, it's killer. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it looks killer, man. I saw it online. It looks awesome.
2: Yeah, it's this local guy, Al Beardsell. He's kind of uh, he's a genius. He's a mad genius, a mad scientist, uh, and a really cool guy. And he makes... Really high end, mostly acoustic guitars, but a few solid bodies. And I just ran the idea by him one day of making an SG, and he was like, fuck, I would try that. And, um, and I, when Sue Lin first came up here, uh, to try out for the band, she brought this like 73 SG custom that, uh, had three pickups in it. And I was like, oh, I mean, that thing doesn't stay in tune, but the fuck is it look good. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: And uh, so I kind of kept that in mind. And then, um, Al and I worked out like a body shape that wasn't quite an SG, but wasn't quite, uh, what's that fucking ESP makes like an SG Oh, style. the,
1: yeah. I can't remember the name of it. It, it looks kind of like a Viper. S- Viper, Viper, Viper. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. So it wasn't quite, it didn't look as, you know, uh bargain bin as the Viper but uh which, which is kind of a cool guitar on its own but um yeah the finished product is just killer
1: so are they gonna like be for sale to the public or is it just for you
2: oh i think i mean i think you could ask him to make you one but okay. uh
1: so it's but, all uh, custom like total custom right
2: oh yeah like yeah he makes the pick he makes everything that's everything awesome.
1: that's crazy yeah. man so does, uh, does it have an Evertune system on it? Cause I, I saw online that you guys seem to use the Evertune system quite a bit.
2: Yeah. That was actually kind of the, uh, like he built it around the Evertune because most of my, like I have other SGs and each one of them has an Evertune, but an SG body is kind of too thin Yeah, for the, for the Evertune bridge. So there's, it's always sticking out the back a bit. doesn't bother me, but people hate the look of it. Yeah. So he built this, he built this SG, um, intentionally to accommodate the entirety of the Everton bridge. So it wouldn't be sticking out the back. Wow. So yeah, it's cool.
1: Have you, did you just recently get it? Did you have it on your uh, last tour of Australia?
2: That's the only tour I had it on so far.
1: So you've played it on tour. Is it, does it like, you seem like you love it. Like how does it stand up to what you've used in the past?
2: It's like, uh, I have this other SG, um, it's like a 97 it's the, it's the Jesus SG. It has like yeah. a picture of a pick guard with Jesus on it. That's my, my number one. It's like this magical SG that's, I've never heard another SG like it.
1: Yeah. I heard you talking on, on some interview, you got it from some guy off Craigslist or something. You met him at a, at a gas station.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was the. The best uh classified ad I'd ever answered that's awesome and uh and this one is the like maybe not sonically the closest well, it's different like every s g is kind of different um but this one is different in its own totally awesome way okay than that one I'd say it's almost it's almost on par actually it's it plays smoother than my Jesus s g like it feels better on my left hand um but I mean, yes, the Jesus SG is, is still its own thing.
1: So when I saw you play, I mean, just on videos and whatnot as well, but when I saw last time I saw you guys play it was 2015 at uh, the vinyl in Pensacola, Florida, when B was still in the band. And at that show you were playing the LTD. What are your thoughts on, on those guitars? Was that something that you really enjoyed playing? Cause I have a couple of LTDs. I really like them is that something you had out of necessity or did you enjoy playing those guitars?
2: That was my, my gateway into Evertune. Okay. I yeah. thought like, I didn't want to cut up my, my guitars at the time to put in the Evertune bridge. Cause I didn't know if it was going to be good for me or not. So I, I bought one of those LTDs with the Evertune in it and I was, I was sold on the Evertune very quickly. And I, and I really liked the, the guitar itself. It just, um, the pickups that kind of worked in that were those EMGs. Yeah. Like I I have like
1: the 81 and the 85 in mine.
2: I think that's what was in mine too. Um, but it, it just was not quite as, it was kind of congested sounding compared to my other guitars. So I, I actually sold that one, um, to finance putting an Everton in in one of my other SGs. So
1: what, uh, you said that that guy made the pickups for this guitar as well. Yeah. So what, what, what are they comparable to? Do you, can you give me like a comparison?
2: Well, the first one he made, um, for me was, I said, I want a really high output pickup for this. And he said, Oh yeah, yeah, I'll make you one. So, but it was his idea of high gain. And it it <laughs> not, was not, not
1: your idea of high gain, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. And I just like, you know, I need it, I needed more high gain. I need it to sound like this, similar to this, uh, this bare knuckle nail bomb. Yeah. And, um, he did a bunch of measurements on my, on the bare knuckle I have in my other SG. And he made a a pickup based on that. Um, And it was, it just immediately was like, fuck yeah, that's a good pickup.
1: That's awesome, man. Well, I've got to say that, you know, the tones on the last record, which we can, you know, go into talking about victory lap, they're brutal, man. Like how, how long do you guys take trying to find those tones in the studio? Is it a plug and play or do you kind of, you know, like slave over it for a while?
2: Um, it's, it's more, it's, it's kind of plug and play. Okay. Uh, there's not too much, um, there's not too much fooling around. Like it, you know, the guitar sounds like it sounds. And then the engineer puts up a mic to make sure it's sounds like that in the control room.
1: Yeah.
2: And that's it. Like, I, I don't like to tweak too much. And I, especially in the last record, I was, I kind of, even like performance wise, I didn't want it to be super precise. Like, um, I want it to sound a little bit ragged um, even to the point where you know I could have played it better, but sometimes I don't want it to be played better because I want it to have an authentic feel. yeah um, cause a lot of records, I think these days there, there's so much opportunity to to make things so precise that it it kind of kills the humanity of the yeah, yeah. Of the record.
3: Like, I mean, I you, can, kinda, you can
1: use Pro Tools, but you don't have to like Pro Tools the the human element out of it, right?
2: Yeah, or even even prior to like using Pro Tools to adjust things, some people will just do endless takes until the guitar until yeah. they finally nail that thing. Yeah, and I just I just think I just think um, back in the '80s, the records I grew up on, you, you just didn't have that opportunity. Yeah, and I I really like the sounds of those records because each one sounds like its own thing. And part of that is like even small flaws in the playing. Um, like, like one example I always think of is double kick in the 2000s yeah. on records compared to double kick in the eighties. Like if you listen to in a song like fight fire with fire uh, and you hear that double kick part in the middle, or even on, on Slayer's rain and blood, like, double kick parts aren't perfect
1: yeah they're not it's, it's they're it not supposed like, to be perfect yeah
2: yeah it's like there's a real person trying desperately to play this part and that's kind of what conveys a sense of like of urgency to the part and guitar wise i kind of like to have a bit of that too like yeah like a this feeling like i'm playing over my head um and I couldn't quite get there Yeah, you know i don't know I i kind of like that vibe
1: I like that vibe as well, man. What was the the last record you guys made to tape?
2: Um, like completely to tape?
1: Yeah, like to, you know, 24 track, two inch, like completely to tape. I mean, I guess m- the last record that you used the majority was tape. I know some people do like vocals on, you know, digitally or whatever.
2: Yeah, well, we, we used two inch tape all the way up to... Uh uh, 2005 Potemkin, Potemkin City Limits. Okay, but then we did the we did the guitars and vocals in Pro Tools, but we did all the drums on tape. The the, the last full tape record was Less Talk More Rock.
1: Okay, that's I think that's kind of cool because you, that warmness of the tape for the drum tones is probably really good.
2: Yeah, and on the last record, on Victory Lap, we didn't do it to tape, but um, one of the guys at the studio we re- we recorded at had a refrigerator sized rack of neve 1073 preamps wow and um they convey like like original ones not not like imitation ones and they they kind of contribute uh, a similar tapish sound to drums you know kind of shaving off the transients a bit and filling in the blanks on the low end and uh I just love that sound. I think the sound of the drums on victory, obviously obviously Jason Livermore's mixing helped.
3: Oh, of course. um, Yeah. Yeah.
2: But the way they were put to the hard disc through these Neve 1073 preamps kind of made them a little more 1980s than 2000s. So that was great.
1: So you guys recently uh, did that. Is it just a remaster or is it a remix of Failed States?
2: It's a it's a remaster, but it was remastered from the stems. Oh, okay, so okay. so the 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 mastering engineer Jason Livermore at the Blasting Room had uh, a lot more latitude for how he was uh, treating each element of the record. Like he could compress compress the stems at different ratios and stuff like that. And it it's it almost is like a remix because it's it just. Um,
1: when I listened to it, I heard parts that I never knew were there, like different layers and stuff.
2: Yeah, it was like a cloud was lifted off the whole thing. Yeah,
1: it sounds great. I mean, I love the production on every record you guys have ever put out. I love even the you know, the first few records where maybe it's a little bit different, but it it's that it's a timestamp, you know what I mean? Like and since, you know, in city limits, it's been like just this amazing wall of noise, but it's so precise. And then when I when I heard that remaster I mean, it just brought it to a whole new level.
2: Yeah, that's what I thought too. I was really happy with it because it, it, yeah, stuff jumped out. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, which was what was supposed to happen in the first place. But the the first mastering job was really uninspired.
1: So, who who came up with the idea to to do that?
2: Um, I guess me and Jason Livermore. Like when I was down there, I think it. I think when we were mixing Victory Lap, I was just we were just shooting the shit like we usually do. Um, and it came up like, what could you do? What could you do to failed States? If I could get you the stems and he was like, yeah, I could fucking make that sound better. And I was <laughs> like, okay, let's, let's do that. And then I asked the record label, you guys interested? And they said,
1: fuck yeah, let's do it. And that's awesome, man. Well, yeah. speaking of uh record label, you guys are, you know, your last record victory Lab, did come out on Epitaph. A couple of the other ones came out on Epitaph. How is it working with Epitaph?
2: It's great. Um, they've been great to us so far. You know, we're at, uh, especially since you know um we're not one of the bands that that uh is paying their bills you know yeah like, like we're i'm sure it's some young goofy band with swoopy hair that's making <laughs> all the money for them. i don't know you know i'm not sure what's going on but yeah but uh the, everybody we've dealt with there is like so has been so accommodating it's not that different than then the vibe that at fat records, yeah, which was also very, you know, everybody was super nice and super chill and helpful.
1: I have some listener questions. If you wouldn't mind answering those, we're getting down to the end here. I don't want to take up a lot more of your time, but uh I had some people write in and ask some questions if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, Glenn from <sighs> Melbourne, Australia, he wants to know if there was a specific moment that influenced you to get into punk or to you know, change your thoughts about music and kind of how the world worked.
2: Yeah, it was the, that first MDC record. Okay. Um, prior to which I would have classified myself as a, as a slightly right-wing nationalist. Um, and then the MDC record came along and, uh, just shattered my worldview (laughs) or or it helped helped shatter my worldview
1: um i think it's cool that a lot of people probably have that same sentiment but for a record that you guys put out
2: oh maybe i would hope that would be the case because that's i mean for me that was the turning point in in my life and i guess that's what we've we've hoped we would try to do for
1: i mean you guys opened my eyes when i was 14 or 15 Years old, up to stuff that I didn't think about before. I mean, everything from, you know, animal rights to, you know, pro feminism to, to just so many things that maybe your average Midwestern teenager is not going to think about. You open my eyes to that. So there's got to be thousands of people around the world that what you're saying about MDC is the same for them for propaganda.
2: Yeah, I sure hope so. That'd be like paying it forward. So yeah, yeah, yeah that the MDC record, um, yeah, it's just I mean that record also stands the test of time. It's so fucking outrageously good yeah. even by today's standards. So exciting.
1: Okay, so I've got uh Patrick from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And this is a, st- a question that I had as well. Uh the song Laughing Stock, why mm-hmm. was it considered a B-side? Why didn't it make the record?
2: Uh, yeah, fuck. I don't even know now. It's
1: a
3: good song, man. It's so good.
2: I think um I don't know what the fuck we were thinking. I think uh towards the end of making Victory Lap we were just getting uh anxious and confused and time was tight and we're trying to figure out sequencing and uh how long should the record be? And, I mean, Laughing Stock was supposed to be on failed states like we had finished it for that um a different version of it and and then redid it for this record and the second time around maybe we thought um, maybe we thought we had lost some of the momentum with it. I don't know what the fuck we were thinking, <laughs> but I kind of wish it had been on the record. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> I was a huge fan of the record. I mean, all the records, of course, but when I saw the post of that song on Facebook and I listened to it and I'm like, how did this not make the fucking record, man? This song is great.
2: Yeah. I regret <laughs> that.
1: Damn it. Well, Hey, at least <laughs> it's out there, right? It's out there now for people. Yeah. Okay, one more listener question. I've got Sam from Cincinnati, Ohio. He wants to know, what is the biggest misconception of the band for maybe people that you meet on tour or just people in general?
2: Huh. The biggest misconception about us? um, That we're American, maybe?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can see that, yeah.
2: I think lots of people think we're from California.
1: I mean, I I guess being, being tied to Fat Records and, you know the, the political stuff in the songs. I mean, I, that, that song, uh, adventures in Zucosis where it's got like the Trump like sample. I mean, for mm-hmm. one thing, that's an amazing song, but I can see how somebody that's maybe a casual listener might not exactly know where you guys are from.
2: Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 And, and with that first record, um, it, I mean, obviously it seemed like a California skate punk band, Yeah, you know? So, we dug our own grave there. So.
1: Well, I know that you know over interviews and things that I've seen that, and you know the Fat Wreck documentary and everything. I I know that you guys kind of felt kind of like a fish out of water with some of those bands, but uh, I mean, I you guys are always my favorite on the label. I didn't get into all the frat boy stuff, you know.
2: Oh, nice.
1: Thanks. <laughs> you, you got it, man. You, you changed my outlook. I was a, as a young kid, didn't really know what I was getting into. And then I heard you guys, and it's like, Oh, okay. This is how you're supposed to be. Or at least this is an idea. <laughs> this is an idea. I'm not seeing you guys brainwash me or anything. Yeah.
4: Don't blame us. <laughs> I'm not going to blame you
1: guys. Okay. Well, we've come to the end of the conversation, but I have a question I've been asking people lately. I do a top five list on the podcast and, uh, I'm interested in asking you this cuz I know you and I both have a love for Metallica and for some reason Metallica comes up a lot on this podcast. It's not about Metallica, but they're one of my favorite bands. They got me to learn how to play guitar at the beginning. So, their first 5 records, I would like you to off the top of your head from 5 to 1, 1 being your favorite, list them.
2: Of Metallica records? Yes, sir. 5 of them?
1: Yeah, the first five the first five records. <laughs> well, not- can
2: I can I include the Creeping Death EP? um
1: i mean yeah or you could just use you know i mean yeah if you just okay just your top five metallica releases how's that you don't even you can do eps you can do whatever you want
2: okay um i have to go from five down instead of one
1: well you can do it the other one way second. whatever i usually one okay. is your favorite but if you want five yeah. your favorite that's fine
2: no no one One is my favorite and it's red lightning okay okay um two would be Kill 'Em all awesome three would be um, master puppets. Okay. Four would be the garage days, uh, revisited. Revisited uh,
1: first... or re revisited?
2: Revisited. Like the the one the with, one...
1: uh, with, uh, blitzkrieg and am I evil?
2: No, th- sorry. Th- that would be my fifth. Okay. And then the fourth would be the one where, uh, Uh, Jason Newsted, his first
1: uh, oh, with like Crash Course and Brain Surgery and all that stuff, right?
2: Yeah, it was called the 599 EP at the time or something like that.
1: Yeah, what they did was they Garage Days revisited was when they put those two songs on Kill 'Em All, and then re-revisited was his first release, the 599 EP.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So those would be my that that'd be my five.
1: Cool. Well, it's really it's really nice to know that now. I wanted to say, (laughs) like at one point you were on Facebook and we were friends on Facebook, and I always loved it because you'd post like really cool vinyl and like. Like, I mean, what made you decide to get off Facebook?
2: Uh, Facebook was making me dislike people that I otherwise liked.
1: Dude, it does that to me every day. <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't have the podcast, I would probably get off of Facebook, honestly.
2: Yeah. I find that with all social media, actually. I find it's just people act differently and yeah, you learn stuff about them that you don't learn about them in the course of just hanging out in real life. So, uh, I think I'm just better off. Um, <laughs> not interacting online with many people.
1: Well, I I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. I've had a blast speaking with you. I'm glad that we could figure it out. And this kind of happened through social media, so we'll give it one little gold star for for, for that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the one thing that I want to know, what does the future of the band look like? I know you guys are going to Europe at the end of the month. Yeah,
2: there's just, um, it looks like things are going to get busy for summer and fall, relatively busy for us. Um, and then I don't know what's happening after that. It's all a mystery. Life is a mystery.
1: Any talks of a new record anytime soon? I know that, uh, victory lap came out a couple years ago.
2: Yeah. We usually don't talk about a new record for three years after the last one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we do that. It's Are there so any
1: like riffs kicking around in your memo on your phone?
2: Oh yeah. There's riffs all over the place. Oh, that's cool. But, man. Uh, I don't know what to do with them.
1: Well, I, you know, you guys have been around for 33 years in a perfect world, it would be 33 more years. And I, I wish you guys, <laughs> I wish you guys all the good fortune. And I'm so glad you came on the show. You, this was a bucket list for me. I know I'm, I'm being fanboy, but it, it was great talking to you and getting to nerd out about gear and stuff was great. Cause not all my, not all my guests play guitar. So.
2: Oh yeah. Nice. Well, I really appreciate you having me on here, Chris.
1: Yeah, no problem. Really cool. uh, do you, uh, can you give out the socials for the band? I know we just downplayed social media, but I'd like my, every, my listeners to check it out.
2: Um, how would I do that? Um,
1: is it at propagandi on instagram?
2: For, uh <laughs> fuck, what is that Todd does Todd does that. Um, I tell you what
1: I'll just put him in the show notes. I'll check it out. You don't have to say another word man
2: <laughs> okay there there is a i could uh I have a patreon page
1: okay, yeah, totally
2: um, uh it's patreon dot com slash jesus h chris i think
1: and you're you guys are um, doing like podcasts and stuff over there as well, right.
2: Yeah, just I, I just do it by myself. Okay. I don't bother the other guys with that. But um, if people are interested in that, they can check that out.
1: Cool. Well, Chris, I just want to say thank you so much. And uh, when you guys do have a new record come out, please come back and talk to us on the podcast. For sure, man. Awesome. Well, have a great evening and uh, I will talk to you soon, my friend.
2: Right on, Chris. Cheers. Bye. Bye.
1: So there it was, my conversation with Mr. Chris Hanna from Propagandi. I had such a great time talking to Chris, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, hopefully, we'll have him back in the future for a part two. We didn't even scratch the surface. I mean, there's so much, so uh, much other cool stuff with Propaganda. I just I've loved them since I was in high school, and um, yeah, it was wonderful getting to have him on the show. If you would go back and tell like 15, 16 year old Chris that you know you're gonna be talking on the phone for over an hour with Chris Hannah from Propaganda, I would not have believed you and uh but now we have it here for posterity it is it is immortalized on the internet so thank you guys so much for checking this out if you're new and you just came here for propagandi, we have so many other episodes with great bands that you will love go back through the archives you can go to tototpodcast.com and check out all that we're available on all of the podcast apps and and platforms and whatever. So I'm gonna get out of here. Make sure to check out all of my sponsors: the Guts, Heathen and Heretic, Merge for Permanence Tattoo Gallery, Rockabilia.com, everything. We couldn't do it without our amazing sponsors. If you guys want to help us out, go to patreon.com forward slash T O T O T podcast and get involved. And uh that's it. If you want to really help and you don't want to like give us money. <laughs> You can just go to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to this show and leave an awesome review, preferably five stars. It really helps people and like the whole algorithm and everything so people can find the show. So if you enjoy the show, tell a friend, leave a review, you know, hit us up on Instagram, give us ideas for guests, whatever. It's it's gonna be awesome. So uh, I have a couple episodes down, you know, coming in down the pipeline that are ready to go. I'm not sure which one I'm going to put out next week. It's going to be a surprise. So, uh, keep an ear to the ground and you'll find out who's going to be on the show, but uh, it's going to be a great episode because all the episodes coming up are amazing. I mean, that's, that's me saying it, but you can trust me because you, you guys listen all the time. You know that I don't lie. So I will see you guys next week with an amazing episode. Like I said, I'm going to surprise you with who it is, but That's it for this one, man. It's a wrap. I always play music. It was hard for me to pick a song. So I just kind of, uh, I was hanging out with my son today and I put propaganda on Spotify and just hit, you know, shuffle. And I heard this one. I hadn't heard it for a really long time and I love it. I remember hearing it at the beginning. And the thing that's really cool with this is it's called Potemkin City Limits but it wasn't on the album Potemkin City Limits. It was actually on 2009's Supporting Cast. So I'm going to play Potemkin City Limits by Propagandi. I love you all. Thank you for checking out this podcast. Please come back next week and I will see you then. Chris out. About
3: the Overproduction reduced the man. Never gave but start to the spill and in a It is short life- The screaming began Fred to shut his eyes And felt the hand Of the humanity Black over here But for the killers Back for a moment A blinding ray of light spread across the floor In a crimson pool Fable Five, you're real. We're somehow still playing to.